of something you bring to the Super Bowl party every year? For me, it's seven-layer dip. I did it once, and now it's like it's my signature. But if you want to change it up this year, guess what? You can make almost any food look like a football. For example, if you want to bring deviled eggs, just add little laces made out of chives. Want to bring corn dogs? Add laces made out of mustard. You can put mayo laces on turkey sandwiches or dip Pringles in chocolate and add little icing laces. You can even put chip dip on a tray, shape it into an oblong football, surround it with chopped scallions, and cover it in bacon bits. Then add laces made out of sour cream. Like I said, you can make almost anything look like a football. But let's say you don't want to make foods that look like footballs. That's also okay. How about frying your own donuts? On this week's episode, Chef Wiley Dufresne, who runs Dew's Donuts here in New York City, and who also pioneered molecular gastronomy at his restaurant WD-50 back in the early 2000s, comes in to show us how to make delicious, fluffy cake donuts. Also on this episode, we go on a crazed pre-Super Bowl taste test of the frozen food aisle. James Lynch tells us how to keep boots from falling apart. Roy gives us a primer on road salt. And the curious idiot has a question about mouse batteries. Happy Super Bowl weekend, y'all. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. You're listening to the most useful podcast ever. And may the best snacks win. So Wiley Dufresne, who has been on our podcast before, is back in the office to make donuts because he is the proprietor of Dew's Donuts, which is an awesome donut shop that I have personally visited and love. And Wiley's in here currently making donuts with this really cool machine. What is this thing called? This is a donut depositor, a very classic donut depositor. The design hasn't changed in decades. Okay. And it's for depositing cake donut batter in this case. So we put the batter into this little hopper and there's a plunger in here. And as we push down on the plunger, it drops a ring of batter into the oil. And then when we release the plunger, it kind of cuts it. And you get like, as you can see, nice little rings of dough that are frying away lovingly. So what's the difference between a cake and a yeast donut in terms of, I know you can roll some of them. Does it have more flour? A a, a cake donut is typically a batter and a yeast donut is typically a dough. And a yeast donut is, well, both donuts are leavened. They rise. Uh A yeast donut obviously is leavened with yeast, hence the name. Uh And a cake donut has what they call chemical leavening, either baking soda, baking powder, or a combination of the two. And that's what allows the donut to rise. Okay, so you make cake donuts, and when we you do it at Dew's, you're not using a small fryer, you're using We're using small fry. <laughs> uh, what they call a donut robot. The same manufacturer, Bell Shaw Automatic, make great donut machines. That's time to flip. We have two of their robots, what they refer to as donut robots. Ooh, they're so golden. And it's got a hopper like this. It's slightly larger, and it's got a mechanical arm, and it drops a donut, and then it swings towards you and drops a second donut. And they're on a conveyor belt, and they float sort of lazy river style down the river like the inner tubes. Uh-huh. And then when they get to the halfway point, <laughs> they flip them over, and then after about two and a half minutes in the oil, they come off on a conveyor belt, and then they cool, and then we do what we're doing right here. We like to sugar them when they're warm, and if we're not going to sugar them when we're going to glaze them, we let them cool off, and then once they're cool, we have a dozen different glazes that we put on the donuts. Right, so you don't want to do any of this hot. Glazing, no. You don't want to glaze a donut while it's hot because the glaze will slide off. And with the sugar, you want to sugar a donut while it's warm. You don't want it to be too hot because the sugar will melt. You don't want it to be too cold because the sugar won't stick to the donut. Right. And so if you're doing this at home, you obviously don't have this amazing Lazy River style machine. And what you're using right now is the Breville Smart Deep Fryer? 
which is really cool. And we, it's something that we tested in the office. And uh, Matt Allen, who is also a regular on our podcast, tested it and thought it was a good one. What are you looking for when you're looking for a home fryer? Like, what would be the properties that you think makes a good one for something like donut frying? Well, this is great. I like the size of the basket. It's a nice size. Conveniently, I can drop four donuts in here perfectly, which is a good number. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see very quickly we have enough donuts for a decent brunch service here. We have so here. many donuts, and we I'm have so a lot excited of donuts, <laughs> And it hasn't taken too long. I think with a home fryer, you want something that's relatively compact. It feels very stable, which is nice. It doesn't feel at all shaky. It feels like it's not going to tip over, which, of course, you have a lot of and oil. That would be very bad. But yeah, um, <laughs> it doesn't feel rinky-dink. Sometimes you can tell immediately when you grab a fryer if it's from the bargain basement side right. of things. But this thing feels nice and sturdy. It has a really nice interface. It's very easy to read. It's very easy to operate. It's holding temperature, which has been great. We've put almost 20 donuts in here and the fryer has been recovering along the way, which is really important. Recovery time is key with frying. Whenever your temperature drops below your ideal frying point is when you begin to have grease absorbed into your product and that's when you can end up with a greasy whatever. Chicken right. wing, donut, french fry, Oreo, whatever. <laughs> oh, the Oreos are so good. We've been doing those in the office and they are tasty. What temperature do you fry a donut at? We fry a donut around 375, 380. Okay. And you uh, want to get it a little hotter than that when you put it in or do you want to just... Well, eat? at the shop we don't do that. But if I am going to be frying a lot of things, one trick is to go maybe five degrees above the temperature you want to be at so that there isn't a lot of loss in that recovery time. But I, again, I have to be honest, this Breville has been... Has been great. It hasn't budged. Cool. So no complaints there. Your sugars are so cool. It's very Wiley Dufresne sort of sugar using not just sweet, but also there's some flavorings in there. We have two sugars here. We have a cinnamon apple, sort of a classic riff on the cinnamon donut. We thought cinnamon apple would be fun, so we put some freeze-dried apple in with the cinnamon and the sugar, and we put a little bit of malic acid, which is an acid derived from apples. And can people uh, just buy that? You can buy malic acid, sure, and it has that sour warhead. Uh-huh. Kind, yeah, it tastes cool. Pucker, and it gives you a little bit of that green apple notes, and that really does drive the flavor home in the donut in a nice way. And then we have a strawberry sugar, and we have freeze-dried strawberries ground up in here mixed with the sugar and then we have a little bit of citric acid in this one to give it a little bit of that tartness, a little bit of that tang. Yeah, they taste cool. Well, these are wonderful donuts, and I am going to go eat some. Thank you so much for coming in and doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, as always. A pleasure to be here and glad to share some donuts. Yeah, I'm glad to eat them. Cool, so James Lynch is our editor-at-large these days. You're up in Vermont still? Yeah, I'm here in beautiful Burlington, Vermont today. So one thing that you are working on, I'm told, is a guide to boots and cobbling. Why did you want to do that? Well, you know, we just worked on a package a couple weeks ago about American-made work boots. And I've had nice boots in the past, and I've seen them just absolutely fall apart. And if I'm going to get a new pair of boots, I want to make sure they're lasting as long as I can get them to last. So sure that's boot care. So who all have you talked to? I've been talking to Jim McFarland. He's down in Florida, actually, your nice home state. Yeah. and Great place for boots, gener- but they know a lot about them down there. <laughs> well, he was talking, actually, apparently there are a bunch of guys who work in phosphorus mines down there. So oh. He's working on these boots that are just beat to crap. But anyway, Jim is a third-generation cobbler. This year marks the 100th year that his family has worked in cobbling and boot repair. Wow, that's amazing. He was saying that cobbling and boot repair is the oldest recycling profession in the world because he's saying as long as we've been making shoes, we've been fixing and resoling shoes. So That's a good point. 
What is the number one thing that you need to do to take care of your boots? The number one thing is conditioning. It's prevention. Okay. Is what everyone I've talked to has been talking about. In that, just like having a nice car, you change the oil and you wax it so that dirt and grime comes off. It's the same thing with your work boots. Okay. And what are the kinds of things that you can do to prevent bad things from happening? Is it like you're using a wax? Like, would you wash them? Like, what? I don't know. Yeah. So Jim and I talked a lot about what is called oil tanned leather for work boots. And that's okay. that like good, supple looking, smooth leather that you have on a lot of boots. And they make a lot of products out of it. And so with that, first and foremost, when you get a new pair of work boots, you should be getting a conditioner put into the boot to make sure the leather is staying full of all the nutrients it needs. Okay. You're looking for something that's going to restore the nutrients and waterproof and protect your boot. Like that's step one. If you are doing that regularly, your boots are going to be able to deal with a lot of stuff that you throw at them. People used to oil their boots a lot, and that's not the standard practice anymore. Okay. So if you're someone using mink oil on your boots, you're living in a... In a what are the 1930s generation. like? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And that oil just picks up grime and dust, and you'll have some just like sticky, weird boots, which you don't want. Is this the same as like getting your boots polished? Like if you sit down in one of those shoe shine things, is that a different thing? No, it's different. Okay. You don't want to polish oil tanned leather. So like your work boot leather doesn't need polish. You know, okay. if you're wearing like patent leather boots, like sure. But dry tanning is what you polish. And that's what a lot of your dress shoes are made out of. Okay. What are the kinds of things that a cobbler can fix? What's worth going to get fixed and like what isn't? Yeah. You know, if you get a good pair of boots and I was talking with Jim and he's saying like a good measure is like 150 bucks. If you're getting boots that are over 150 bucks, odds are you can get those resold. And if you're paying for less than 150 bucks for your pair of boots, it's probably not worth the money to pay for your boot to get resold. Right. But a lot of the work that's happening is right there on the bottom of your boot. So if your heel is wearing away, you can get that replaced. If you're wearing through the rubber bottom of your boot, you can get that replaced. So resoling a boot, they call it recrafting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also shanks in boots that extend from the like front of the heel to the footbed that keeps your arch elevated and supported. Sometimes those will break and you can start seeing boots fall in the middle. You can get that replaced as well. Oh, okay. That sounds like a big part of the boot. Yes, a big part of the boot. Sure, like the structure of it. Yeah. But what they say is as long as you're keeping that leather, the uppers, intact and healthy, which is, you know, you're using your conditioners, then you can get that sole replaced over and over again. Okay. So a boot is totally done only when the upper wears out? So there are a couple things. There's some death notes for boots, for sure. So if you're not taking care of your leather and it's cracking and tearing, there's not much you can do about that. Okay. But there are ways to make a pair of boots that could be salvageable, a total lost cause. So let's say your sole starts coming off and you decide that you need a couple more weeks out of it before you can get to a cobbler. So you jam some Gorilla Glue in there. Not what you're trying to do. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I would think to do that, but I'm glad I wouldn't because that sounds like it's bad. Yeah, don't shove any glue in between the soles of your boots because it's all stitched on. And if you start gluing things together with the wrong adhesive, you'll never get it apart and you won't be able to recraft those boots. Okay. What else can go wrong? A lot of boot companies will make their soles out of polyurethane, which is a great material and it'll wear well and it's resistant to wear, but it has a shelf life. It's not the number of miles you put on it. It's the number of years that go into it. Mm -hmm. And so if you buy a nice pair of hunting boots that you only wear when you're going out duck hunting, you wear them three times a year, you you might find in five years that the soles of those boots are falling apart. Oh, I think I've seen that kind of thing before where you go back home to your parents' house or something. They got a pair of old sneakers that you've had forever ago. You haven't worn and you're just like, what's wrong with these? And they're all dry rotted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've seen that before. 
well, that can get sticky as well. And uh-huh. what happens then is it breaks down. It gets like gummy and tarry. If you get that stuck in your leathers or the bottom sphere of the leathers, there's just nothing you can do about it. Right. So in terms of finding a cobbler who's going to be good to help you fix something, you know, say you got a pair of like good $300 boots that really are your favorite pair and heels coming off or whatever. How do you find a cobbler that's not going to screw that up and is going to like replace it with the original or the right kind of heel and all that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So you're really not going to find what you're looking for, what you need, the expertise in a big box store. Go on Yelp. Go on Google Reviews. These are businesses that are out there and people are going to and just read the reviews. See what your community is the best reviewed cobbler for you. Right. I think it's a profession that, you know, the number of boot repair shops has been going down. So I think a lot of people who are involved in the industry still and are dedicated cobblers and boot repair guys, you know, they've been doing it for a long time. This is not a profession you just kind of like hop into. So if you're finding guys who are dedicated to it, you should have some pretty good luck. Yeah. And for people like us in uh, these cold climates, all these boot places will sell a salt stain remover that works in your dress shoes, your boots, whatever you use on it. And I'll get those stains out as well. Oh, that is brilliant. The salt will get you, especially in New York City, because it's like your feet or your tires. You know, you just, you're always walking around in salt. Well, cool. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll check in again next time you're working on some cool story for us. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Time again for your favorite segment, Snacks Facts. Snacks Facts. Peter, what's your favorite snack? It's my favorite segment. Nobody told me to prepare the favorite snack. You don't, you don't have, have to prepare it. You don't know what your favorite snack is? I mean, I generally eat everything. I would say every day I probably eat two to three granola bars. Ooh, that that's a lot that's of a good granola snack. bars. Yeah. Yeah, protein, protein bars. Yeah. I found the ones with the lowest amount of sugar, which is still six or seven grams <laughs> three times is a lot, but, you know. It's a good snack. Mine's either beef jerky or York peppermint patties, which are the two mm. most opposite things I can possibly imagine. I don't eat them together. That's not a thing. <laughs> what about you? My real person favorite snack is an apple. My inner child favorite snack is Cheez-Its. Oh, Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its. I forgot about your Cheez-Its. Your inner child sounds much more fun than your real person. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, I'm just going to have an apple. That's about right. Delicious. You can eat those together and become one fully formed human. That's an option. That's what I'm going for. Yeah. That's the hope. I hope this isn't Snacks Facts. No, I have, some, I have some historical. <laughs> no, no, she's got Snacks Facts. Okay. I got Snacks Facts. I'm going to warm you guys up with some history of snacks okay. in the United States. The filling for Twinkies was originally banana flavored. What? But then during World War II, there was banana rationing. So they switched to vanilla cream. And then people liked that better because banana cream sounds disgusting. <laughs> and so they kept it. Oh. It does make sense that a Twinkie looks like it should be yeah. full of bananas, doesn't it? Yeah. Sure. It doesn't sound good. Maybe because I'm I used to regular. So, I bet it would be like a banana cream pie. Which also doesn't. I like those. All right. Well, you're allowed. I know. World War II apparently changed a lot of snacks in the U.S. M&M's came about because we needed a way to send chocolate overseas without it melting. So that's like what the candy coating is for. So wow. the chocolate would stay intact when you send it over to soldiers. Melts in your mouth and not on the flight to Nazi Germany. That's, <laughs> that's the slogan they should have gone with. <laughs> I think that was their slogan. Oh, yeah. It's very catchy. <laughs> did you guys know that New York has a state snack? I did not. If you had to guess what it was, what would you guess? <laughs> Probably Maple candy. It's yogurt. What? That's our state snack. Ew. It's a good snack. It's a healthy snack. Plain yogurt. Not like what Maud, our copy editor, eats with all the sugar in it. I feel like it would be all yogurts. I don't think you get to discriminate if you're going to pick yogurt. No disparaging people who aren't on the podcast on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's a little rude. We don't no have enough microphones response. for Maud to come in. <laughs> so New York is only one of five states to have a state snack. Utah has Jello. Texas has tortilla chips and salsa, which well, feels unfair that they get to yeah, get all one. of them, but yeah. also makes sense. South Carolina, boiled peanuts. Oh, that, yeah. And Illinois... Just claimed popcorn. <laughs> well, do they have a lot of corn there? I feel like I feel Iowa like really should go that's for true. it. Yeah. I mean, but they already have, no. 
<laughs> there you have a uh, funnel cake. Corn. I don't know. <laughs> corn. Regular corn. Elephant ears. <laughs> and I will leave you guys with some Super Bowl snacks facts since that's coming up. We eat a lot of snacks on the Super Bowl. Last year, we spent... Americans spent not, not like me, not just Eleanor and her friends. <laughs> Three bushels of apples. Two hundred and twenty-seven million dollars on potato chips. Wow, alone. Wow, that's so many potato chips. That's a lot of potato chips. And one point three billion chicken wings. Wow. Billion with a B. That's amazing. It's a lot of and delicious. Wings. And that's been snacks facts. Snacks facts. Roy's back. Yay! Oh, thanks. Good to be back. <laughs> I know you haven't been on in a while, but we were wondering, for a while there it was getting a little snowy and gross out, and mm. uh, I saw a lot of people spraying salt around with those little salt sprayers. I don't even know what those things are called. Salt spreaders, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so we wanted to talk to you about what people should know about salt spraying or getting salt for their home <laughs> or making sure that they don't slip salt. on their sidewalks because yeah. there's snow everywhere. I mean, what do you do with this stuff? Yeah, good question. And I could see where you find it kind of gross being a, Flori- a native. Well, I, I wasn't born there, but I was raised there from the time I was six. So yeah, okay, I'm, yeah. I, you're, you're a Florida. I don't understand yeah, snow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, start with the basics. The first step is always remove it as quickly as possible. You want to get that surface to a point where a shiny, light-colored surface doesn't absorb heat the way a darker surface. So anything is better than white. Okay. That's thermodynamics 101. A darker, rough surface is going to absorb heat from the environment more readily than a light-colored, shiny surface. I mean, it's like the difference between a mirror, let's say, and a piece of asphalt. Secondly, use a de-icer, only if it's necessary. So what is a de-icer? A de-icer is obviously something that melts ice. The two most common de-icers in the United States are rock salt, and the other is calcium chloride. A more expensive alternative, the more effective. They work to a lower temperature. That's important. Oh, okay. So you get more de-icing power from a calcium chloride. When the winter is severe, I tend to blend the two together. I'll use a little bit of calcium chloride with the rock salt to increase its melting power. Let's say you couldn't get all the snow off and it's getting footprints and tire tracks or compacting it. And then the stuff is going to melt and refreeze, melt and refreeze, and you're going to get ice. Yeah, you want a de-icer there. If the surface is pretty clean, let it go. So you don't put it out like the night before there's going to be a big blizzard or anything like that? that's a matter of technique and opinion. Some people do that, and it's a perfectly valid method. That's why county, state, local road crews are now using brine. They use a liquid de-icer. Oh, really? So, yeah, some people prefer that. Now, I got to tell you, that will always work in the sense that you have the de-icer on the surface and then snow falls on top of it and the snow melts and the snow above that forms an insulator. So it's actually pretty effective from preventing the snow from adhering to the surface. That can work very well and very uniform, by the way. Where that starts to fall down, though, is when somebody drives or walks on the surface. So you have this moist layer, like the soggy snow underneath, Mm -hmm. and then you have this compaction going on. That can backfire. 
Right, I could see that being very slippery to drive over. Yeah, yeah. It creates a problem. Usually what will happen is it will freeze or portions of it will freeze before you get a chance to attack it. So rock salt is the favorite in the sense that it is the cheapest. You can buy it in bulk. Every home center and hardware store carries it. It has a reputation that's partially not deserved for attacking concrete. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. Almost anything that you can put on a winter surface can end up attacking it. From really? The free, yeah, from the freeze-thaw cycle. That's a tricky conversation to get into. You get into the chemistry of concrete. Does it have reinforcing wire on it and other things? With any de-icer, you're not brining a turkey here. <laughs> Less is more. Okay. It doesn't take a whole lot of de-icer to do the job. I mean, how much are we talking about here? Like for one square of pavement, say you're a sidewalk square, Mm because that's something I think most of our listeners will know about what Mm -hmm. size that is. How much de-icer are you spreading over that? You're talking certainly less than a handful in most cases. You know, once that surface is shoveled clean, you want to look where there are footprints or something compacted that you couldn't remove. Sprinkle it there. Apply it lightly, light scattering, very effective. Okay, so you don't have to sprinkle it over the whole thing. No, you really don't have to. Now, I get it. You see municipalities, offices, and so on, they broadcast this stuff. They don't have the time that you have, and they're worried about liability, rightly Mm -hmm. so, as you should be if you have a public sidewalk. Exercise caution there. You know, be more concerned about people's safety than using an extra teaspoon of de-icer. What is the danger of putting too much de-icer out? I mean, is it going to like wash into your lawn? Absolutely. In fact, snowplow damage and de-icer rock salt damage typically are leading causes in this part, in the northern half of the country that has what are known as cool weather grasses, cool season grasses, can be very readily damaged by de-icers, especially rock salt. That's a plant that does not grow well in a sodium-rich environment. It doesn't seem like there's many. Salting the earth, I think, is a thing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) What about the pet-friendly ones? What are those? You'd have to talk to a veterinarian about this. There's all kinds of stuff that will melt ice or aid in traction. Rock salt especially is sharp. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a sharp, you know, until it melts and forms like a brine solution. Yeah, it's sharp. Now, all that aside, there are products. They're quite expensive. They're labeled as pet-friendly. You know, so people care for their pets. That can only be a good thing. Some of them, now you should be aware, with any de-icer, pet-friendly or otherwise specialized de-icer products can have abrasives. Actually, they put abrasives in them. One of them I saw has aluminum oxide, which is the stuff they use on sandpaper. Now, it forms a great non-slip surface. (laughs) Anything that works loose on your foot or your pet's feet is going to come into your house and it's going to abrade the floors. Oh, yeah. Well, keep this in mind. You're spreading sand on your driveway. The stuff gets tracked in. So have a walk-off mat of some kind, even if it's just a big discarded beach towel or something. Just get that stuff off of your shoes you mm-hmm. know, as you come into the house. Yeah. And you know what is another solution to this? You just moved to Florida. Peter Martin, you're really giving Kevin a run for his money on the Curious Idiots lately. <laughs> I feel very like you're curious, trying, very idiotic. You're trying to like supplant him as this office's Curious Idiot. It's true. So your current curiosity is about mouse batteries? Yes. So what is wrong with your mouse batteries? I get frustrated every three or four months when the batteries on my wireless mouse need to be replaced. I have to take them out, but then when I put them back in, it just doesn't automatically pair. And I think that's dumb. 
Because when you have a Bluetooth speaker and you turn it off, you don't turn it back on and then pair it with your phone again. You just turn it back on and if and your it pairs automatically. On, it, it happens. Yeah. And the extra headache for me is that here we use laptops plugged into external, or to, I mean, I guess all monitors are external, plugged into <laughs> extra monitors. So my laptop is folded down. When you open the laptop, it rejiggers everything on your screen. It just reformats it because you have a much smaller space. I have to open my laptop up, use the trackpad to go up and turn the thing back on, put it back down, and then kind of reset the setting. So right. it drives me nuts. And I thought maybe Alex can help me. Yeah. Alex? So there's no real solution to that, unfortunately. <laughs> so you're going to have to suffer with that extra six seconds or so of... It's more than... Peter Martin's life is tough. <laughs> but it does kind of get at something that, that's kind of interesting and will comes up a lot. So that mouse that you're talking about that actually runs on AA batteries is maybe five years old, I think. It's, yeah, it's least, an older model. Yeah. So on most new modern things, like Bluetooth speakers, for example, that have a rechargeable battery, it has to do with how much information gets kept on a device... Like it's pairing memories and stuff like yeah. that. So what happens when you physically remove the battery, the entire power source is gone. And there's nothing built in. Right. Rechargeable devices like rechargeable mice and stuff like that use a tiny little bit of energy that from the battery that's in there. So when you take it out completely, it loses some of the Bluetooth right. information that's on there. Newer Bluetooth devices just have more chipsets that will remember stuff like that and not make it so you have to do that again. Same if you've ever had to like reset a router and some routers have like a backup battery that's in them. If you have to do the full reset, you have to take out the backup battery too. It's kind of the same idea. Yeah. So I'm sorry to say that. I you just will, need a new mouse. Yeah. Upgrade to it. But and, new um, mice have that little bit of battery charge that's in them. Yeah. That's drawn from the batteries. It's, it's not like there's a separate thing that has to be recharged. So I couldn't get a really specific geeky confirmation on that. But yes, that's basically what it comes down to yeah. is it always has that power in there and when you take the only power source that that mouse that you're using has on it it gets rid of the pairing memory that needs to repair to something like that are more modern mice rechargeable is that yeah for sure oh, okay that's how it would save the information and in it is that right it's yeah. rechargeable so it saves I, it's, a little power i couldn't get a straight answer because you know, it gets into like intellectual property about and how that stuff works it also has to do with how like bluetooth is just better now because everything requires it so all manufacturers make it not a pain to pair stuff like remember five years ago like pairing Bluetooth speaker or pairing like an AirPlay speaker or something like that to your computer is a huge pain. Well, I think our very first Curious Idiot was Kevin trying <laughs> to figure out how to pair his speaker to yeah. his computer. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't even five years ago. And that was like so. three years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like with the new iPhones, if you hold your older iPhone next to the, like a new one that you just opened up, if it's just in proximity to each other, it'll say like, do you want to copy all the information to it? Nice. So like without having to actually pair it, I think more and more of that so you don't have to deal with what you're talking about. Like everything will just be more seamless and hopefully a whole lot easier to deal with. Are the modern mice now, do they give you any warning before they die? Because that's yeah. the thing that used to always, oh, they do. Yeah, even mine says, you know, your battery's getting low, you should change it. And I just put it off as long as I can because I don't want to open up the computer. Oh, I see. So that's your fault there. Yeah. I haven't had a wireless mouse forever. And back when I did, it would always be like, you're moving along in the middle of whatever. And then you're just like, why can't I? What the heck is going on? And then you realize like, oh, it needs batteries. I see. Yeah, they've gotten a whole lot better. Like the new Apple trackpad, the external ones are really good right now. And they give you a warning before. So I have a keyboard and a mouse from this company, Logitech. They make awesome ones. The keyboard, I think, I've charged it once in the last three months or something like that. They use such little energy that you can just go forever with it. And then you you plug them in for a couple hours and it'll last that much longer again. So yeah, it's hard to say. It's just old stuff. Just got to deal with it, Peter. It's a satisfying answer, though. Yeah. It makes yeah. sense. The yeah. batteries are out. You got to get a new mouse. Well, the Super Bowl is coming up this weekend on Sunday, and we have been testing some snacks in the office. We mentioned Maud earlier in the episode. Maud is one of our copy editors, and you're kind of like a snack expert. She's I our feel. frozen food expert, yeah. right? 
Yeah, my diet consists significantly of frozen food. I am 25, but <laughs> well, I just, eat like I'm 18. What did you have for dinner last night? You told me this morning. I think you should, just to set up your credentials. Okay, so for dinner last night, instead of the bagel bites I was going to eat, I had some raspberry iced tea and four plain Eggo waffles. So there's nothing in your fridge, but your freezer's all full of food? Oh, yeah, and then like some ketchup. <laughs> uh, so Maud had some strong opinions about everything we tested yesterday. And I should say, I have a pile of frozen foods on my desk because we tested so many, so many things. Just as good last minute options. Yeah. You know, if it's like you realize a couple of friends are coming over and you did not get all the dip materials or they're out of chips at the supermarket <laughs> as, or whatever as that happens. I don't know where that happens. But we tried a bunch of different things. We sent Eleanor, who's our fax maven, to Trader Joe's and she got us some cool Trader Joe's stuff. And then you went to the regular and grocery store. And then I went to the regular grocery store. So I got some Totino's pizza rolls. I got bagel bites. I got TGI Friday's potato skins. I got super pretzel pretzel dogs. And I got Jose Olay mini tacos. That's what I got. Oh, and I got TGI Friday's spinach and artichoke dip. You got a mistake was what you got. (laughs) (laughs) Should we start there? Let's start. I think, yes, let's start there. So first off, the spinach artichoke dip, what would you think? I think I heard watery. That's what I heard. I think the consensus is too watery, right? Too watery. I mean, I've had it before and it was delicious, but this time. (laughs) Should I just throw the boxes we don't like, like in a chair? Like, don't like these. That way people, if people are listening, they can see the stuff that's in the chair. They they all know that they don't want it. What about the TGI Friday's potato skins? Also not good. The TGI Friday's frozen selection of those two things. It's tough. Although, and this is what Maud loves. Maud likes them. Maud loves the the potato skins. In the traditional oven, they're a lot better. They come out crispier and, you know, the bacon's not charred. But like we, it we did come out ours, yesterday. Right? Yeah, it was pretty severely yeah, I burnt think, yesterday. I, that was user error. Maybe I think that was not... user error because we were using a toaster oven, which has like a heating element at the top. But I will say I actually didn't hate the potato skins. No. I don't know. I'm Yeah, I'm going to say they're okay. I'm putting them in the okay pile. Okay. <laughs> the other TGI Fridays. What about the bagel bites? I was like, oh, man, bagel bites. <laughs> and I was so excited about them. And then I was like, oh, the bread is so weird. I haven't had them since I was a teenager. The memory factor was there for me. It was a nostalgia treat. Save the nostalgia and don't eat them? I don't know. What do you think? I eat them <laughs> regularly enough that the nostalgia has faded. So but were yeah, you pro-bagel bites I'm pro-bagel bites. Okay. Okay. Pro-bagel bites. So maybe okay. the maybe chair, just because uh, Jackie and I were on the no chair, but Maud is okay, in the yes. So. What, do I have more chair. weight in this debate? I think so. Debate? You, oh. I mean, yeah, you're the expert. So I think actually yesterday there was a conversation that Totino's Pizza Rolls and Bagel Bites were camps, Mm -hmm. that you were one or the other. And I am actually a Totino's Pizza Roll person, although I do think they are hot. Hot. Lava and they will hurt your face. Mm -hmm. But if you can handle the face pain, then they're delicious, I think. Yeah. So are we like full pro on Totino's I'm Pizza pro Roll? Totino's Pizza Roll. I'll go pro. Totino's Pizza Roll. I don't think people are going to be excited. In the yes chair. Those are great. Jose Ole mini tacos. Can we talk about these? I used to eat in college when I had <laughs> had far too many beers. I used to eat the uh, taquitos. Their taquitos are those great. Which are pretty best. good, but they're so greasy. But yeah, they're also so really good, amazing. though. I couldn't find those at the store near us, so I got these mini tacos, which are like those, except... In that they are of Mexican descent. Not. No, those are, these are definitely not of Mexican descent. These are like... Mexican have, inspiration. These are like waved in front of a Mexican flag once, and that's like the extent of Mexican yeah. involved here. Many of them were in the taco like the clamshell yeah. and they were closed and that was a benefit because you couldn't see the meat that was inside. Yeah. The one that fell open, nobody touched. I will say yesterday, everybody was so excited and ate everything every time I would put out a new batch of food. <laughs> the says more about only that things the food. they did not eat were these mini tacos. Yeah. They yeah, were not finished. Harsh. So I'm not putting these good. straight up in oh, the no chair with the spinach no. and artichoke dip. And then we have, last but not least from the regular store, the super pretzel pretzel dogs, which you were excited about. I was about. so excited. I love soft pretzels. 
a pretzel is so good. But there's no salt on these, and we decided that really? was okay because there's probably so much sodium in the hot dog that yes. you don't really need it. I think the bread on these was pretty good and pretzely. It was. We didn't like the hot dog, right? The hot dog was strange, I thought. It was a little fake smoky. None of the hot dogs that we ate, though, tasted like good know, hot dogs. I know. I feel like the pretzel dogs were okay. They were serviceable, is what I right. would say. Maud, would they become a dinner for you? Oh, that's a side dish. What do you think? Pretzel dogs? I think the maybe chair. I think maybe they should chair. go with the bagel bites, yeah. Okay, so we'll go over at the end what made what here. <laughs> that's a good idea. So you're clear. Then we have a whole other batch of snacks. Trader Joe's is a store that I think people are really into for their frozen selection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What we got from there, we got Trader Joe's mac and cheese bites, which are these little like balls with mac and cheese in them. We got uncured bacon wrapped dates stuffed with goat cheese. We got Spizico de Pizza, <laughs> which are these little mini cheese pizzas. They kind of look like bagel bites. <laughs> and then we got Pastry Pups, which are Beef Franks wrapped in puff pastry. Pigs in pastry. a fancy blanket. Yeah, pigs, pigs in, in a fancy blanket. Pigs in like one of those nice Pendleton blankets that cost like $100. <laughs> That's like what it is. So should we start with the Pastry Pups? Let's do it. Okay. okay. These pups were even stranger tasting yes. than the pretzel dog pups. Yeah, they were quite odd. They were odd. But the puff pastry was great. Yeah. Yes. But the Franks, they're uncured, so maybe that was why the, the taste was <laughs> oh, a little yeah. strange. What do you think? Maybe, Pile? Yeah. Yeah, like I wouldn't. Soft, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Spizzicota pizza. Crowd pleaser. I liked Crowd these. Pleaser. I think people really like these. Yeah. They were like what I wanted bagel bites to taste like. Yeah. They had flavors in them. That was exciting. Oh, they had like, it was like they had spices. Yeah. yeah. I was it like, was... yeah. <laughs> Spizzicota pizza. Solid yes. Solid, solid. yes. Good solid flavor. yes. Trader Joe's mac and cheese bites. Also a solid yes for me. Solid yes. The way they cooked, they came apart. apart. Yeah, they were hella calvesies. Not an easy thing to hand out to friends. Certainly not a toothpick food. No. No. Not a toothpick food at all. They crumbled, so you made a mess, but it was worth it. Yeah. I think if you gave this to your friend and it was all crumbly and you were like, I'm sorry about this, just put it in your mouth. Then they would put it in their (laughs) mouth and they'd be like, you know what? I forgive you. Yeah. That's how I feel. Okay, last one. Okay, last one, last one. The uncured bacon wrap dates with stuff with goat cheese. Looked gross, tasted good. They tasted so good, but I think they're too fancy for a Super Bowl party. Yeah. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. It depends how fancy your friends are. But if you're willing to have your friends be like, oh, fancy boy, I got the bacon wrapped date stuffed with goat cheese, then these were very tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Worth it. Okay. Worth the the ridicule. So, okay, just to recap, in our yes pile, we've got Totino's pizza rolls. We've got Spizzicota pizza, which are little mini pizzas from Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's mac and cheese bites which were very tasty but did fall apart, and uncured bacon-wrapped dates stuffed with goat cheese. All excellent Super Bowl choices. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.